Welcome back to Trending in Education. Dan Straffer, Michael Palmer along with you. And on today's episode, we're going to talk about something that's very zeitgeisty, Mike. The inverted yield curve is everywhere in the news. Finance is on the horizon for us here on today's episode. We'll talk financial education about implications of the current financial market. And uh, we will also disclaim we're not financial advisors. But Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Uh, yeah, wow, you covered a lot in your opening question there, Dan. So, uh, and also, we won't be joined by anyone, right? This is just, just, just the two of us talking about inverted yield curves. Just the two of us. I nailed it. It works. It works. I almost missed, but I, I stayed on rhythm there as best I could. Uh, yeah, uh, and uh, to uh, restate your disclaimer, uh, Anyone who would think about making uh, any financial investment or portfolio management uh, decisions based on what they're hearing from you and I in the next uh, half hour or so, uh, I, would, I, would, I would recommend strongly against that. Yes, uh, agree. We're, we're, we're speaking more in the abstract. Uh, and uh, honestly, we're speaking, I'm speaking at least in part as someone, as a lifelong learner, I learned a lot about uh, economics and about the bond market and about inverted yield curves in part because of the Twitter verse uh, going crazy in response to, uh, to what's called a, an inverted yield curve, which we'll get into in a second. Um, as I mentioned to you, like when we were prepping a bit, Dan, too, like it, this seems the use, and you also beat me to the zeitgeisty too. Like, that's what I'm saying. I don't, even, I don't have any material to work with anymore. <laughs> you you kind of grabbed it all up front. But, um, but yeah, like it is, it does feel like, you know, heading into the fall, uh, coming out of the summer, people frequently think about what's going to happen to the markets. Right. Uh, you know, uh, where should I, if I have any uh, capital to invest, if, I'm, if I have a portfolio that I'm managing, if I have a 401k or an IRA, how do I think about how it's, uh, how my assets are distributed? And then, uh, you know, even outside of any of that, uh, what does it mean to my day to day right if the economic climate uh is going to change uh and something we've re referenced at least uh at a high level on a few occasions is like the 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 US has had a relatively strong economy in the last few years while uh Europe has had a lot of challenges and also parts of Asia have been facing some new challenges, not to mention uh, developing markets. Uh, you know, Argentina just had a, a significant um, uh, crash, really, in their in their uh, developing market. So, like, there is uh, there are like macro trends around uh, the global economy that, uh, in some ways, the U.S. has been insulated from. Um, you know, folks are expecting some kind of correction, uh, particularly to the stock market. And, uh, and that's really where this comes in, this idea of the inverted yield curve, um, which uh, I'll tease one more time. We are going to explain what it is. But, uh, but I think even before we get into the specifics of it, it's more like people just want something to grab hold of right. to say, because of this leading indicator, something macro is going to happen and uh, get ahead of the trend by being aware of this trigger. You can call it whatever you want. Um, turns out there is an actual thing that is an inverted yield curve but i think the way twitter works frequently is like it becomes something trending even before people really know what it means and the trend is more like 
you know, there's a harbinger of something new on the horizon uh, economically. And uh, without even knowing what it is, people are looking it up, retweeting it, et cetera. And, um, and I think that's really interesting as like a, like a, a almost like a, a way in which everyone is learning something at the same time or yep. is being refreshed on a, a concept at the same time. So do we want to get into the, the nuts and bolts of what an inverted yield curve is. I've been teasing it. I'm excited to talk about it. I was hoping for one more tease, but I, I, on your point there, I do think the learning factor of Twitter and social media and how these sort of very, I'll say mundane, but very specific topics can take on a life of their own and almost be changed because of social media, you know, used for different sharings and, and ways people use these topics and get on board with hashtags is also a very interesting point we're at in uh, the way people share information, the way people learn about things. And I'm on board with you. I, I did happen to work in finance before, never had heard this phrase before. Mm-hmm. And once I saw it, I, I dove in. I, I went to you know Google and I searched and I, I researched. I don't know how many people are doing that. How many people are getting beyond that surface level tweet or Facebook post to really understand what uh, an inverted yield curve it is. And that's one more tease because now we're going to talk about it, Mike. We're going to yeah. dive in. Well, well, yeah. And I would just say like, I was surprised this go around at how detailed a lot of what I saw on Twitter was. So like it did feel um, different perhaps from other things that I've seen go viral that this was going viral. And maybe it's partly because the 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 phrasing inverted yield curve or yield curve inversion is a very specific uh, concept and historically uh there's a very high correlation between this uh phenomenon happening within the bond markets and then uh a a large recession a recession of some kind following within the next uh, 18 months to two years so uh, the other reason why we're talking about it uh on this show is that it's a place where the entirety of uh of Twitter, <laughs> not the entirety of it, but everybody who's tracking this hashtag is suddenly thinking about the next two years right. in terms of the global economy. That is very future facing and that is trend spotting that I think is happening uh, at a macro level. And, uh, and yeah, let's get, into, let's get into the nuts and bolts. And the other thing is, uh, you know, there's a lot of references out there. So there's a lot of ways that people can learn more about it. Um, yeah, you want to pick up a little more with uh, what the internet has to tell us about the inverted yield curve? Sure. To your point, there are articles on multiple sites. You simply Google the phrase and you'll get a lot of the information. But to, to give some background, uh, it was Campbell Harvey, a Duke University finance professor. Harvey wrote a dissertation in 1986 that first showed the yield curve's ability to predict recessions. So that's where this stems from, is that research back in 1986 uh, by Professor uh, Harvey at Duke University. The definition of an inverted yield curve is pretty straightforward when you read it. Um, it occurs when the interest rates on short-term bonds are higher than the interest rates on uh, rates paid by long-term bonds. So the idea of long-term bonds saying 10 years for a bond or even longer, uh, as opposed to a one or, or five-year bond, uh, the interest rates being higher, closer to you than farther away would seem to indicate, or, or according to this research, indicate that people are more concerned about the future economy than they are the near term, mm-hmm. which would, to your point, talk about a downturn or recession, whatever word comes into play there, could be a you know, predictive factor in that 
potential downturn in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, it is also, you know, when you're talking about the the quote, the wisdom of the crowds on the one hand, and when you also talk about, um, you know, sort of like mass hysteria, mass, right. mass uh, you know, speculative bubbles and, and so forth, frequently that's based on everybody behaving in uh, the same way, in, in a way that is sort of self-sustaining and feeding off of itself. Absolutely. So, so that's the other reason why it is interesting in, you know, with the advent of social media, that uh, the impact of stuff like this can, uh, can actually feed back into the markets themselves. Right. Uh, obviously, the markets are, are always looking at these types of things. But like in this particular case, um, you know, the the traders and people who are speculating and people who are investing in the market, um, they are also likely seeing these concepts, you know, on television, uh, in their Twitter accounts, uh, through, through their social media activity. And then that's likely at least eating at their minds, uh, and may in some ways be, uh, you know, eating into their portfolios. So like they may wind up, uh, making, uh, you know, decisions around how to invest based on uh, sort of this pop culture phenomenon. And uh, I think it may be uh, accelerated uh, by virtue of how, how much we're all looking at Twitter all the time these days and, and other social platforms. Yep. So um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think at the same time, uh, it is a reminder that we are in a golden age of online learning too, where like there's really good content out there uh, to understand uh, what this concept means. Uh, one article that I really liked, uh, which we'll share out, was uh, from the Harvard Business Review, where they were talking about how um, you can make an analogy to uh, pro football teams when you're thinking about uh, these types of investments. And uh, like a short-term bond would be uh, like the New England Patriots. And then a long-term bond would be, they use the example of the Arizona Cardinals, uh, but was like a team that, uh, you know, has a lot of draft picks and a lot of sort of uh, a new GM, a new, a new right. young manager, uh, young coach. Uh, so like there's a lot of positive prospects around uh, where we're heading. But, uh, but at least in the immediate term, uh, you know, if you're looking short term, the Arizona Cardinals would be a tougher bet. The Patriots would be a better bet. But if you look long term, it, it would be... Uh, flipped so so basically what that article was saying was that if you look at the inversion of the yield curve it would basically be saying i would rather bet on the short-term wins i would get from bill belichick and tom brady right now and i would not invest long term in the patriots at least because long term they're going to have to rebuild uh as opposed to like the standard practice so like basically the the patriots are an example of an inverted yield curve and then uh, a, a, like a rising team with a lot of draft picks is more an example of, uh, of the standard dynamic where like I would expect 10 years from now that I would get better return right. than something I would invest uh, in, in a very short term. And uh, I thought that was interesting. It also, you know, it did make me reflect more just on how you just de- develop learning concept, learning products and uh, how quickly, uh, social media, Twitter influencers respond when something bubbles up like this to then explain it uh, and to explain it best. Yep. And, uh, and what I've found, at least in this 
particular case, and we've talked about a lot in uh, learning just in general, is finding good analogies. Yep, absolutely. Uh, and, uh, and at least for me as a, as a sports fan, uh, I did find that, that sort of analogizing to uh, the Patriots versus the Cardinals, uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, idea. And, um, you know, we also wanted to talk a little more around just financial education, financial literacy uh, as well. Right. And, and I'm uh, disappointed it wasn't the Jets as that future team, but <laughs> I, I will deal with that later as a sports fan as well. And I'll say um, anytime you can get to that analogy, we've talked about it before. I know you've mentioned it for Saxburg when he was on uh, a couple of years back now, talked about coaching and the idea of reaching people where they are and the analogies you may need to use. And in a classroom of 30 students, some analogies will miss, right? Because some student isn't a sports fan or some student isn't a movie fan. Uh, but trying to find the right language to talk to your students and talk to the people you're trying to teach is really important. But mm -hmm. I, I think that does transition to something we've talked about, I know personally between you and I, and I've brought it up before, around financial education, around how and when we should be learning these things. Um, it's interesting that in public school, in K-12 school, we're not getting more personal finance as a requisite, as a, hey, this is things you need to know as you go to college, as you move forward into your career, I can think of so many people I know who first job had no idea what they were filling out when it came to their 401k. Yeah. You know, when it's talking about you know, percentage of your earnings and what the, the uh, business is going to match, if they're going to match mm -hmm. at all, here's an IRA, here's a pension and all the different implications, all those things. How do we seek out that information? How do we get to trusted sources on the internet? How do we seek them out? And should we, I guess as a society, be doing a better job in public school and K-12 education of starting that conversation earlier and yeah. seeding some of this information and some of this know-how. Um, it's the balancing of a checkbook. It doesn't really happen as much anymore. Not many people carry that checkbook around with them. Right. But that's something I do remember in high school, or it might even be middle school. We went through in a civics class right. in understanding it. Do we need to do more? Do we need to lean into that more on finance and talk about uh, debt from college, talk about uh, 401ks, investing in the stock market, uh, risks, rewards there. Do you mm -hmm. think that's something from a public school perspective we should be doing more of? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah, that was a nice leading question. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do. And, uh, and, and I also think um, some of the concepts uh, that you're kind of touching on uh, tie to a lot of uh, the work of economists like Richard Thaler and others who, uh, you know, Richard Thaler uh, in particular uh, talked about the concept of libertarian paternalism and uh, choice architecture uh, where, where basically you want to design very straightforward defaults so that people default into what is ultimately in their best interest. So I, I think there's a combination of education on the one hand, so that when people are faced with choices, they make the right ones. Uh, but I think the other like sort of next level concept that's coming out of uh, behavioral economics is that people frequently don't want to think that much when making decisions. So like if you present them with more uh, favorable defaults, uh, we talked about it also around like data privacy, like if you default to not sharing your information for with advertisers, uh, that's a choice architecture design. That's one that, uh, you know, Facebook uh, famously has been slow uh, to adopt because that really starts to undermine their their fundamental, um, you know, business model around advertising. 
But, uh, but I think it's true around, uh, you know, choices like, you know, should I enroll in a 401k? You know, like you should be defaulted into that. Uh, and just because people will need to take an action to do something that is not in their long-term interest, um, in some ways this does open up that type of thinking where, um, you know, when should I think about the short term at the expense exactly of right. the long term? And, uh, and that's also where, uh, you know, that's almost what's happening in the bond market yep. right now, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it, sense. yeah, well, kind of, <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, you, as you were saying it, I was making the same connection in that, are you investing in the near term, buying a car? Or are you doing things near term that have benefit, but also take away from the retirement? And you right. see enough advertisements out there of uh, people are living longer. Retirement is longer now. 401ks matter more because of how you need to retire and the income you need during that time and take the politics of social security out of it. Will social security be there for everyone? Um, it is a great point though, from an education standpoint of educating people on the near term and long term goals of investing of, of having money set aside for retirement for the rainy day fund, whatever it may be, yeah. uh, is, is a really dynamic and, and important discussion to have uh, about the, the common good that financial education can really help an individual lean towards as they're trying to figure out the rest of their lives. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, and to your point, like, I'm not sure all of it needs to build, be built into formal education. A lot right. of it can come more through parenting and through uh, uh, just being creative as, a, as someone who's doing their lesson planning, if you're an educator. Um, but I think the more it's like, you know, problem-based, uh, activity-based, uh, the more we can structure lesson plans that uh, maybe tie to being a little bit more entrepreneurial. Uh, the, the old lemonade stand idea where like, you know, understanding that you need to uh, manage some costs, manage some inventory, do a little bit of marketing, uh, you know, be cute, uh, you know, on the, you know, in your driveway or on the sidewalk. Uh, like all those things are actually uh, good developmentally appropriate, uh, you know, lessons um, I think we have a bigger problem around our educational system that, that we've talked about uh, a few different, a few different ways on the show is that it's very, um, rigid and not as responsive, particularly K-12 these days. Uh, so like, um, you know, you mentioned civic class, like where would you actually talk about the markets? Where would you talk about, um, you know, just good, uh, managing a budget? Uh, you know, when we talked to Melissa Griffith a, a few weeks back, we were uh, talking about the importance of negotiating when we were talking about pay equity. Um, you're not really taught those things unless you're on a, you know, a business administration track. Um, and I think increasingly those are the competencies that are going to become more really table stakes for all of us. Uh, and, and the same thing around, um, you know, being able to, uh, interview well and being able to understand uh where you find joy in life and and how you understand you know cost benefit trade-offs both hard and 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 more uh intangible you know so like if you if you really want the hard return of uh, a competitive salary even over the the flexibility of you know spending more time with your family um that type of decision analysis, you know, reminds me a little bit of when we talked to, to uh, Annie Duke as well. But um, 
teaching kids how to make smart decisions about education, about their own uh, good education, about their own decision making, uh, so that they can make smart trade-offs. Uh, and I think it frequently uh, it is that uh, tension between what makes sense for me right now versus what makes sense for me long term. Uh, and the last thing, also not as uh, official financial advice, but I was listening to some podcasts uh, about this on my way in today. One of the ideas that I thought was interesting is thinking about how much you have invested versus how much you have in cash, and then understanding that cash is part of your portfolio, particularly when we might be heading into uh, a bit of a downturn uh, in the financial markets. You know, then you could be flexible based on how uh, your stocks are performing in terms of how much you want to have in cash versus how much you want to invest. And, uh, and generally, you know, it reminds me a little bit of Rohit uh, Bargava of the non-obvious company too. Like you want to be counter cyclical. You want to be positioned to sort of take advantage of downturns and, uh, and really get out at the top of an upturn. Um, so um, it's, it's also just a cautionary note. Like it's a time to be uh, just a little bit careful around trying to make a, make a major return in, in traditional uh, marketplace investment. Um, but also, you know, a lot of these bets are really long-term. So, uh, you know, you really, if you have a 401k, you shouldn't be thinking about that as something you want to get speculative about. Um, but to your point, Dan, like it's not something that's necessarily built into our educational system. It's left up to individuals to decide to lean to into this out. stuff. And then uh, how much are we modeling this uh, to kids at an early age to say, you know, you should open up a, open up a savings account when you're, when you're young and, and then understand how interest is actually accruing to you from an early age. A lot of those things come uh with good parents who are financially secure right. who are thinking about that but like that not a lot of kids are growing up without any of those things and uh, and how can we as a as a society start providing better tooling uh for kids uh so that early on you're starting to understand uh that stuff in a way that's developmentally appropriate too like there's times when <laughs> You know, you don't want to be, you know, taking toys away from your kids because you want to talk like this is, you know, this is basically how the bond market works, you know, so uh, you're gonna have to wait to get the bigger toy, uh, you know, down downstream. Um, but, uh, but a little bit delayed gratification, uh, you know, there have been a lot of studies, uh, that like yep. the marshmallow test famously yep. Walter, Walter Mitchell's marshmallow test is very much about that where, um, you know, being able to forego immediate uh, gratification typically does uh, foretell good things in your future. So the more you can be thinking long term uh, and sort of allocating your resources accordingly and starting that from as early an age as possible is uh, is hugely advantageous. Um, and uh, and yeah, I don't know. Did we want to talk briefly? I think we wanted to get into this maybe as as a subject for a subsequent show, but uh, but but uh, but I thought maybe just real quick we could touch on uh, the the letter that was written by 181 uh, CEOs, which uh, my my somewhat cynical take is that it's interesting that that letter came out right as we had these uh, foreboding indicators that a recession may be on the horizon. Yep. But uh, but these CEOs. Uh, 
wrote a letter to say that it's not all about value for shareholders and that, uh, you know, you need to be generating value for your customers, uh, generating value for your employees, uh, and thinking more about purpose and long-term uh, engagement. Uh, do you have a little more detail on that, Dan? Because it's something we're going to want to continue to cover. Yep. Uh, the Business Roundtable, which is, uh, I guess, a consortium of sorts amongst uh, businesses in Wall Street and beyond. Uh, they penned a letter that talks about exactly that, the idea that a uh, statement on the purpose of a corporation. So exactly what a corporation should and should not be doing. Uh, the final line of it was, quote, each of our stakeholders is essential. We commit to deliver value to all of them for the future success of our companies, our communities, and our country. And that on its own doesn't sound like much, but it means stakeholders meaning everyone. To Mike, to your point just now, uh, not only the stakeholders who actually own shares of the company, but the employees, the people who buy products from these corporations. So saying, uh, your purpose is beyond just bringing money to your shareholders. And that sort of goes starkly against uh, what was known as largely how private and public companies work, Milton Friedman's work back in uh, the 70s about the behind closed doors, it's all about profit uh, mm -hmm. for companies. Mm -hmm. And so 181 CEOs across multiple companies signed this and I've been out there talking about it. I do sort of take your cynical take as well that the release of this letter comes at a a very interesting point. There's a bit of PR to this. But I find this HBR article, one, really in-depth. So we'll share this one out as well. It's a really fascinating read. Um, I will also disclaim, and I mean this generally, I, I worked closely with Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, when I was there. So I have some personal biases probably in, in this uh, discussion. But it's talking about workforce also, that if you have a purpose with your company and your engagement with your workforce sees that purpose, they're more, more likely to stay on and you're more likely to exceed expectations, more likely to have a better product because of it, because people want to care about something. People want to be involved in a good company. It talks about the difference between public and private companies. It's easier for private companies to have a purpose. Public companies have to talk to shareholders and be out there in the world. But I find it fascinating. I find this sort of discussion uh, to be important. Um, any thoughts here for you on top level? We do want to dive into this deeper, not going to go yeah. too deep here, but yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think we, it's kind of a tease for a subsequent show. Cause I think we want to get more perspectives, uh, on this topic. Cause I think it's a really interesting one. Um, yeah, I think in the, in the, the most narrow perspective, uh, maybe the most short term angle, it does seem like a hedge by these CEOs to say, if we're not delivering as much value to our shareholders in the near term, it's because we're also thinking about our workforce and our customers and other, uh, other stakeholders. So it's almost like, Hey, you know, give us a pass on a, a tough year or two yep. if macro trends are, are negative in the short term. Um, so I think, I think that's probably a fair critique and that's, that's part of the way they're thinking about it. I think the perhaps more important idea here though, is that, Ultimately, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not uh, either I, I satisfy my employees and uh, the, mar the marketplace, and then that ultimately benefits, uh, you know, and, and that's, that there's a tension between that benefit and then benefiting my shareholders. I think ultimately, particularly when you think about long-term, you think about a five to 10-year time horizon, if I'm being good to uh, my customers and the marketplace, and they know that I'm a fair actor and I have, uh, you know, a sense of uh, purpose that resonates there, 
Um, and I also am able to attract and develop talent by having that kind of a mindset. Ultimately, those are the, and you know, again, we'll dig into more of the details about this, but ultimately those are the organizations that really do thrive over a longer uh, time horizon. Um, I think it's interesting, you know, it's a nice counterpoint to the, the eighties, you know, Gordon Gecko, uh, you know, greed is good, uh, idea that became public back then. And then, uh, in many ways became something that was not, it wasn't okay to talk about, uh, profit as the end goal publicly. Um, I think that's now gotten to such a point that, uh, there really is a movement happening now, and this evidenced by this, that um, people need to be able to understand things over a longer time horizon to be uh, smart about uh, just making good decisions. And, uh, and I think that's generally something uh, where you can please all three uh, legs in that stool. You can make something that resonates with the marketplace, is very customer focused and mission driven. You can attract talent in that same vain because uh you know the high caliber talent particularly rising uh millennial gen z and younger uh is going to be attracted to mission driven purpose oriented organizations uh and then ultimately it when your shareholders have a longer term perspective you know they will see the benefits that uh are really yielded over a longer uh time horizon around being uh, obsessed with customers and really engaged with uh, with your workforce. So we'll come back to that in more detail. But I do think uh, you know these these topics are are pretty closely related. Uh, yep. And uh, uh, I also think we need to dive in in more depth, maybe with more experts, into the concepts uh, we were touching on around around financial literacy and uh, you know the kinds of life skills that are most relevant uh, that are maybe not as formally built into our K twelve uh, educational system and then is generally limited to a relatively small subsection of folks who are, uh, you know, in, uh, undergraduate and, uh, other post-secondary, uh, education. It's pretty small slice who are really focusing on the formal aspect of this education, which is why I think there's huge opportunity for better, um, informal education around this and better ways to equip parents with the right kinds of tools to teach their kids uh, at the right ages uh, how to think smart about managing their finances. Um, lots of stuff, uh, lots of stuff to chew on. Lots to dig into, definitely. And uh, we will look forward to reaching out and getting some of those experts on in coming weeks to discuss this and more on financial topics. If you are one of those experts and you happen to listen to the podcast, feel, uh, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or, or via our website, trainingeducation.com uh, to let us know. We'd love to have you on and uh, discuss these topics in the future. As always, you can find us on Twitter at Trending and Ed. Same on Facebook said trainingandeducation.com. We appreciate each and every one of you. Podcast awards, some interesting news here. We are one of the 10 finalists for the education category for the podcast awards. More details to follow on that and more right here on Trending in Education.